This evening I would like to speak about different aspects of wisdom in relationship to the body. In our meditation practice we do notice, at least I hope we've all noticed, that we have a body. And um, this experience that we call bodily life, having a body, is rather significant, is rather important for us. In a very immediate and direct way, it is our body that tells us where we are. We are here and now because our body is here. Our mind, you've probably noticed, can be anywhere. But what, when we say we come back to here and now, in a way, we are actually referring to here as where our body is, from a geographical point of view at least. And there is something very reassuring about that ability to come back to our body, to come back to our breath, which is in our body, and to feel the physicality, to feel the, the rather sort of substance of our life in the body. And yet, of course, this is not the only significance of our body. And as we come to explore what it means to have a body, we see both that wisdom is necessary in relationship to our body and how we hold our body, how we relate to our body. And equally, our body offers us wisdom when we relate to it in a way that allows us to receive that. Probably the fundamental recognition with regards to our body, the fundamental wisdom is one that we've already referred to. To recognise that this body, having taken birth, as we all have, is subject to an inevitable process of decay, described rather traditionally as old age, sickness and death. In fact, in the Buddhist tradition, there's sort of quite a lot of emphasis made on this particular thing, birth, old age, sickness and death, and none of it is good news according to the tradition. And one almost sort of wonders why people come to Buddhist meditation retreats if they've heard anything about it, because it sounds like it's not really been designed by a very skillful PR person. You know, the advertising people wouldn't really want to let us put that on the posters. This is what we're here to contemplate, the old age, sickness and death of our body. And yet, just simply acknowledging that this is the nature of our body is very much at the beginning of being able to deeply accept and open to it, to what it is and to what it offers us, to not struggle with our body, with what we call the experience of body, what we describe as our body. And in that perception or description of it as our body, we see that there's a very deep fear associated with our body because of its fundamental nature, i.e. being born, it moves inevitably and inexorably towards death. It just does that. And because of that, we find ourselves at some level, very deep, sometimes it's more obvious on the surface, involved in an attempt to somehow protect our body prevent it from travelling along that path, to prevent it, or at least delay it for as long as possible, arriving at that destination, safeguarding ourselves from harm from death. And appropriate, of course, that we do this. We don't need to rush this journey. Most of us wouldn't wish to. And yet, that tendency we have that can so much inform and colour our lives, this tendency towards fear and anxiety, the feeling that we are somehow in conflict with life, that life is somehow threatening to us. We experience this because actually at one level it's true. Life is fundamentally threatening to our hope for permanent existence because it doesn't happen that way much as we might yearn for it. 
It's not such a bad thing, in fact, because, in fact, if everyone who'd ever been born was still around, it would be quite a crowded place, you could imagine. But seeing what happens in us when we're faced with challenges, with threats, and again we've touched on this, but one way we can see it and understand it is we're trying to ward off something. We're trying to defend ourselves from something. And we kind of do what is very much a fundamental animal thing. Our body does it, just like the bodies of most, if not all, animals do. In the face of a threat, we try and kind of make ourselves bigger, stronger, larger, to somehow ward off or scare off any oppressor or aggressor or threat to us. There's a, a fish, I, I don't know if they um, are found in the waters of Europe, but in New Zealand a fish which we call the puffer fish. And it, it basically, when it's threatened, it sucks water into the sack and it blows itself up to about three times its normal size. And so one moment it's just sort of swimming along, looking like a tasty morsel for another fish, and the next moment when it sees the threat, it puffs up. And if the system works, the fish thinks that's too big for me to eat and goes away. Of course, what's interesting is that the puffer fish can't really swim while it's like this. It's all puffed up, it's kind of stuck. Probably start to sink if it hangs around like that for too long. It's not a particularly flexible or fluid condition. If we've ever noticed in some situation of anxiety, fear, uncertainty, the hairs on the back of our neck starting to raise, it's our body doing exactly the same thing. For animals with fur, when they're frightened, puff it up. They make it stand up to make themselves look larger. If you've seen a cat that's been frightened, its tail's all fluffed up, its fur standing on end, it's that same process. And our bodies seek to do the same thing, to make themselves bigger, larger, to defend themselves. We find that as a result, they become rather tense, rather rigid, rather hard. And we also find that this doesn't necessarily serve us. I'd like to share with you a story that uh, I heard from a, a friend of mine, in fact on this retreat last year, so one or two of you will have heard it before. And it kind of, I think, describes rather wonderfully this, this process of how we respond to challenges in our life. It's an actual transcript of a radio conversation between a US naval ship with the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. And it reads like this, this is a transcript, it says, Americans, please divert your course 15 degrees to north to avoid a collision. Canadians respond, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Americans, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no, I say again, you divert your course. Americans, this is in capital letters, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln. <laughs> the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic <laughs> fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north, that's one five degrees north. All countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadian, this is a lighthouse. <laughs> Have we seen the way that when faced with something challenging, we kind of puff up in our minds, we start when we're angry or when we're threatened in conflict, we become incredibly righteous. The sense of self becomes very solid. Our body becomes rigid. And often what actually happens is that it starts to sort of become habituated to that condition. 
it becomes hardened, it becomes solid, it loses its natural fluidity, its ability to move. So that not only do we puff up, but we get stuck there. And just like the puff of fish, it means we can't swim very effectively anymore. So in our practice, we cultivate giving attention to our body. This is a rather simple thing to do, and yet it's remarkable and revolutionary in what it offers as possibilities to us. It's not something that we really find ourselves habitually doing unless perhaps we've been trained in meditation or we've learnt it in association to some particular physical skill or sport or technical capacity that we may have trained ourselves in though often once we've trained ourselves in it we've then stopped paying it's like walking there's one highly useful and complicated technical physical skill as a baby we have to or a small toddler spend a lot of time paying attention to our body to figure out how this thing works I imagine a small child has to learn to be remarkably embodied in order to succeed at that endeavour that involves so many sort of so many different muscles and ability to coordinate so many different things. But for the most part, that's not our relationship to our body. We've kind of long ago learned habitually what it needs to know. We function on autopilot. And partially because of that, we don't give it much attention. But equally because the body is something of a mysterious thing as far as our mind is concerned. The body is something that has, as it were, a mind of its own, it would think. If you've ever noticed your mind trying to get your body to do something, you can see it only has a limited amount of success trying to get it to stay awake, for instance. It's usually the body that's falling asleep most of the time when we're tired. Sometimes it's the mind. But often the mind is saying to the body, wake up, wake up. Sometimes it's saying, go to sleep, go to sleep. It doesn't necessarily do that, does it? When we tell it to. And it's like, at some level, at least for what we could call the, when I say mind here, I'm speaking more of the intellect than the the deeper heart-mind that is not separate from the body, but the intellect that we're very used to relying on as our kind of primary way of negotiating through our lives, it tends to distrust and dismiss the body because it's kind of unpredictable, it's kind of unreliable, sometimes it's a little bit messy, particularly when it's young, but even as it goes through its life, it's constantly produces various substances that aren't that pleasant. It has accidents of all sorts. As it gets older, it starts to go back into the condition that's more like when it was young. And it really doesn't do much at all, but the mind tells it to. And this the sense of distrust in the body, and a sense of, not just that distrust, but also that the body can be a difficult place to inhabit. We've noticed that. We've noticed that physically sometimes it hurts just to be here, just to sit, just to be still. We're not doing anything too strenuous, not asking of you that you attempt any Herculean or Olympian feat of physical endeavour. No one's asking you to run marathons or fight sort of multi-headed monsters, though sometimes it might feel like it. And yet just our physical body can be so difficult to inhabit. And we wonder why it is that we spend so much time in our minds. It's not an accident. There are very few genuine accidents in life. One of the reasons we're so much in our minds is because it's actually very difficult to be in the body. Because it's not as we want it. It's not in our control. And often, in that not as we want it, out of control, it's uncomfortable, and we really don't like that. We really don't like it. 
So what happens is we bring attention to our body. What we often find initially is that it's kind of a little bit hard to get in there. It's like we feel it as sort of a lump or a denseness or a solidity. We don't really have a feel, we feel like we're sort of looking at it or feeling it somewhat at a distance it might be. But as we come back into our body again and again and again, that very process and the intention that we bring as we come into contact with our body, an intention to actually inhabit it, to feel it, to know it, to explore it, the kindliness and the warmth of the attention that we bring, and attention is essentially a life-giving quality. It brings warmth, it brings light, it brings space into that which it is given to. And when we give attention to our body, it's like there's a certain moisturizing process or tenderizing process whereby we begin to feel again, whereby the solidity, the hardness, the, the rigidity, the stuckness of the body starts to soften, starts to open, starts to speak to us. There's a, a wonderful poem by American poet Galway Canal, which I think speaks of this and speaks very much of that quality of attention that we could give to our body, equally to our heart. It's called St. Francis and the Sow. The bud stands for all things, even those things that do not flower, for everything flowers from within, of self-blessing. So sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch blessings of the earth on the sow And the sow began remembering all down her thick length, from the earthen snout, all the way through the fodder and slop, to the spiritual curl of her tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from her spine, down through the great broken heart, to the sheer blue milken dreaminess, spurting and shuddering, from the fourteen teeth into the fourteen mouths, sucking and blowing beneath them. The long, perfect loveliness of thou. There's something I feel rather wonderfully evocative of that, that sense of bringing our attention to rest, to connect with, as though putting our hand on the brow of ourselves of another, in a way that's expressing a recognition of the loveliness, of the naturalness, of the aliveness of this being. <coughs> this being here, another being, equally. That sense of actually touching our body with a caring, appreciative, interested attention. Touching it in that way, the body comes alive. The body starts to remember. The heart, that is not separate from the body, the heart, mind and body, are ultimately all so deeply interpenetrated that they are not and really cannot be separated. Although we may experience them as different aspects of that whole. But in that sense of touching, of touching our body with that quality of attention, of care. There's a way in which we remember. Our body begins to remember its wholeness, its goodness, its aliveness. 
And this is so different to what is going on so much of the time. When more consciously or more subtly, we are in some way putting pressure on the body. The mind, the demands, the efforts, the wanting, the not wanting of the of the, the small mind, we could call it, the ego, intellectual mind, is putting pressure on the body, somehow trying to make it conform to the way the mind wishes things to be. And the body pays a price for that. So equally does our heart and our mind. When that starts to change, when we're no longer kind of making the body into something we have to struggle with, when we actually are really there, we're not ignoring it either. Sometimes the only attention it gets is when we think it's the problem. But when it starts to get the attention, not from it being a problem, but out of a real caring, a real interest, not just sort of mechanically mindful, but interested, then it starts to speak to us. We start to sense that it holds within us, it holds within it, or it holds within that aspect of what we are. A lot of possibility, a lot of potential. The mind and body being different aspects of the same dynamic truth influence each other and equally influence our life and express our life. And often a whole, a total, a complete understanding of our life does need to include our body and include listening to our body. Both mind and body experience and express holding, contraction, tightness, as I was describing before. And they equally experience letting go. When the mind lets go, and this is often what we're looking for in meditation, when the mind lets go, sometimes it's like a, a light comes on and suddenly we see clearly something that we just hadn't seen before. It's like we go, ah, oh, that's an insight. Sometimes it comes sort of like a thought, oh, it's like this, and we think, oh, yeah, that's obvious. Sometimes we even think, I knew that. But we realise we know it more deeply through that moment of understanding. The body, when it lets, lets go, however, does it rather differently. And it's often we just feel some sense of something shift, something change. Maybe movement, maybe heat, may even be pain or discomfort in some way. And it may come together with some sense of understanding in a conceptual way where we have some sort of language expressing an insight in our mind which lets us know perhaps more clearly that this is a body release, the body letting go of some holding that's been locked into it. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the body is releasing, is letting go all by itself. And yet, when we experience it, we don't necessarily know that this is so or trust what is going on. A large amount of pain that we experience in our body is actually to do with control patterns, patterns of holding and pressure that we put on our body. And often when we actually release those patterns of pressure, we experience this as actually painful initially, as though we held our fist very tightly for a long period of time till it became numb. And then as we released it, it would actually hurt. It would actually be uncomfortable. But this is actually a transformative process that returns it back to life. And yet, most of the time when the body is doing something we either don't like because it's unpleasant or we don't understand because it's somehow doing it by itself, we, we don't know, it's sort of out of control sometimes what happens in our body. It's hard for us to listen well. And there's something of an art that we cultivate in practice, an art of listening to our body. That doesn't mean that every conclusion we draw about our body 
is necessarily the truth or from what it's saying. It doesn't mean that just because we feel pain and the thought goes, I've got to move, we should move. But equally it doesn't mean that when we feel pain we think, I've got to stay there, that that's the truth either. We need to find our wisdom through a little deeper contact with the bodily life. And sometimes we can have very specific things and it can be quite fascinating what the body holds and therefore what the body has to reveal to us. I had a really interesting experience in uh, recent years in my own practice when I was working with a sense of contraction and tightness that I would sometimes sense in the abdomen. And a number of you will probably at times have experienced tightness or tension in that location. And for me, at this time, what was very interesting was that as I brought my attention into that region, which is around the diaphragm area, there was a sense of a pulling, really really pulling very strongly. It was really curious. I didn't know what I should do with that. If I put my attention there and relaxed everything else, didn't resist what happened, it would pull my body over as though I was going into the fetal position, which is like, you know, folding in half. And it was strange. I spent a lot of time sort of having to be very strong so as not to collapse. You know, it doesn't look so good in meditation if you keep sort of going like this, um, particularly when you're sitting up the front. Um, so, you know, it was kind of interesting, and yet it just seemed to be happening by itself. It was kind of weird, kind of bizarre. I really didn't know what it was all about. I, I, I worked with it for quite a long time, I guess, you know, going into it, feeling it, leaving it alone, doing something else, coming back, playing around with it. And one day, I just suddenly had a sense of, hmm, what's going on here? And I just reflected on what my response to it was. I was kind of thinking somehow, oh, this is something, something's opening here, you know, there's going to be some release, maybe we're going to get somewhere, you know, the end of, the end of whatever this is, is pretty close, and I'd sort of, I'd sort of, you might be able to hear this, I'd push against it. I don't know if you can hear this. Pushing against it would sort of make this noise. Um, I'm not sure if I should have put that on the tape. <laughs> but anyway, it was sort of kind of fascinating, and yet there was also this kind of sort of kind of hard edge to it, like kind of somehow trying to force this open. This place, I could tell there was contraction. It was clearly a place of holding, but trying to force it open. And rather than doing that or ignoring it, which seemed to be my two options up till then, I just suddenly thought, oh, okay, what is this? And I just felt that it was, it was pulling me down. So I thought, okay, well, let's try that and see what happens. And I just relaxed and just allowed it. And it's interesting, it still does it now. I just bring my attention there and it just pulls down. So I bent over, I sort of banged my head on the floor to show you right now. But um, what was really interesting is I just bent down and as I bent down and as I came to rest my head on the ground in front of me, it was gone. There was nothing for it to pull against anymore. Once I'd actually bent down, I wasn't resisting it. And I kind of just had this sense that what it was telling me to do was actually bend over. In a way, what it was saying was collapse, give up, stop fighting this condition in my body. And a little while after that, I had a whole stream of understanding that just came through about what was going on that was placing this in a context in my life that was actually remarkably significant. And what I actually understood from it was that allowing my stomach or that my diaphragm in that moment to just do what it was doing, not fighting it, not controlling it, not presuming I knew what was best for it, which was, you know, to open it out, stretch it this way as far as I could, you know, all of that. What it was actually saying was acknowledge your vulnerability. The belly is the place we're vulnerable. This is our, together with the throat, these are our two most vulnerable places. We feel fear. It's all about vulnerability. We feel it here, most of us, much of the time. Also in the throat, it's not a coincidence that we feel it in these two regions. In the days when we had to fight off wolves, basically the two places they can actually kill you, or any other wild animal, unless it swallows you alive, is there and there. The rest of it is pretty well protected. And that's where we feel it. So in this, 
the tendency of what was going on there was this is pulling, it's pulling. It's like the belly is trying to be strong because it's rigid, it's tough, it's tight. That's often what's going on, it's contracting when we experience fear. Butterflies we call it, or whatever. Anxiety in here. It's tight, it's pulling. And it's trying to be strong. And of course if we do anything long enough it becomes a habit and we start doing it even when we don't need to be. And this is what had happened here. Not an uncommon thing for us to hold tension and anxiety or pressure, stress in the diaphragm, in the abdomen. And what the interesting effect of it was is that when it's in there and it's going all the time, what it does is it pulls me like this and it puts the back out of shape. It basically undermines the posture. And what was really interesting in this is as I bent down and just gave in to that feeling of what was happening and just sensing that, oh, this is just human vulnerability. My vulnerability, we could say. When I actually, my head touched the ground, there was like this whole pulse of energy just moved up through my body from the base of the spine and without me doing anything, it just picked me up and it sat me upright in a posture more perfect than I can ever imagine to get into when I try to by sitting here going, how do we do this? That's right. It was remarkable. It was like honouring the weakness of the belly allowed that part of the body which is to be strong, which is naturally supposed to be strong, to express itself. And it is the back that is the primary place in which strength is expressed in our body, in our torso. The back that holds us out, the muscles of the spine and the structure of the spine. And what I understood is that in kind of trying to be strong in the belly, which is the wrong place, it undermines the ability to be strong where we are. And for me there was a whole process of, of understanding how, how difficult it is for myself, and I imagine many of us can relate to it, to honour and accept our own vulnerability, our own limitations our own weakness at times. How we feel we always have to be strong. Such a powerful message we get. We have to always be strong. And yet, it's not possible for anyone to be always strong. Sometimes we are strong, sometimes we are not. And when we get fixed in a view of being one or the other, we limit ourselves rather profoundly. If we feel that we're only vulnerable and weak, then this is just partial truth. If we feel that we're strong and independent and nothing can touch us and we don't need to rely on anything else, this is also only partial truth. There is that element of what is our fundamental nature that is completely independent, that is threatened by nothing. And yet there's equally a fundamental element of what it means to be human, to be alive, that is completely vulnerable. Completely vulnerable. The roof can fall in on this building. I hope it's not going to. But it happens sometimes in buildings. And our vulnerability would be all too obvious in that situation. I used to talk about, you know, a plane could accidentally crash land on the building, but I don't anymore because one crashed about three miles away recently. I thought, that's getting a bit too close. Um, I won't sort of invoke the possibility anymore. And so, giving attention to our body, just being open to what it may have to offer to us, is an invitation to it that it may take us on in a surprising way. And yet not in that to to look for such things or for interesting experiences to happen or wow, this, you know, something nice, so I'd like something like that or something else. All of that can easily become sort of, we can, we can have some attachment or fascination in that way. But it's kind of more having a real respect for our body. Having a real respect for its wisdom. And this also this also applies to the experience of what we call pain. That it, it's significant. We, we know that it's significant because 
when it's happening, it's usually the focus of our attention. We usually don't like it. We want it to go away. We've talked some, of course, about just being with it, which is important to be able to just be with challenging conditions. And yet, it's got more to offer than just something to be with. It's like pain is very effective in its function, and it has a function. It's not something that was sort of, you know, the cosmic joker sort of wired into our system just to sort of make life more difficult. It has a place, and its place is quite simply this. It says, pay attention here. It does it really effectively, if you've noticed. It says, pay attention here. And yet our response to it is, I don't like it, it shouldn't be here, and I'm not going to pay attention to it if I can possibly help it. I'm going to look the other way and pretend it's not there, and if I can't avoid looking at it, I'm going to sort of thump it or squash it or push it away. And yet what it's saying is pay attention here. The condition of leprosy is something we in the, the Western world are rather thankfully unlikely to come into contact with. It's one that evokes sort of horror and disgust, repulsion even in many people because of the incredible disfiguring that it can result in. It's really interesting to know what it actually is because once when I was travelling in India quite a number of years ago and I had the privilege of working in a, a leprosy clinic um, treating street people in, Cap- in Calcutta who came with incredible um, injuries and uh, wounds and sores resulting from leprosy needing treatment. And I actually was told by one of the, the doctors working there what leprosy is, how it works, and it was amazing to hear. That leprosy doesn't actually cause you to um, have any sort of injury or disfigurement, or it doesn't make your body rot, it doesn't make your fingers fall off, or any of those things that we tend to imagine. What leprosy does is it kills the nerves that tell you about pain. That's all it does. It kills your ability to know you're in pain. And people who are poor, the kind of people who are perhaps illiterate, not educated in healthcare, they cut themselves, they burn themselves. It doesn't hurt, so they don't do anything about it. Start to become infected, rot even, gangrenous. They don't do anything about it. That's actually what leprosy does. The fact that they can't feel pain is the cause of their greatest suffering. It's remarkable to think for a leprosy sufferer to experience the actual sensations of pain in their body would be the most helpful thing they could have. And yet it's probably unlikely that we find ourselves grateful for it when we experience it. We don't tend to respond to it with much enthusiasm, do we? But wisdom in relationship to our body asks us to reconsider. Paying attention to that condition that we call pain. I'd like to read a story. It speaks, perhaps, well, speaks, I think, very directly about the, the possibility of transformation in our relationship to the difficult, to our body, to ourselves. It was told by a, a senior monk, Ajahn Suchito, from the uh, Amravati Sangha. He's actually the abbot of Chittahurst Monastery. He came to the uh, monastery in in Budgaya, India, when I was sitting a retreat there, and he was passing through and he gave this wonderful talk and told the story. And uh, I liked it so much that I eventually transcribed it and recently asked him if it was okay if I told people. Because I think it's rather wonderful. So, when I tell the story, this is actually him speaking, not me, though I'm reading it in the first person as he told it when I first heard it. Many years ago, I had this particular pain in my right shoulder. I would sit there, pain I would think, be with the pain, that will do it. 
Here am I being with the pain. Being with the pain. It's not working, you know. Maybe I need to do some yoga. Oh, that's got it. Oh no, it's back. Uh, cushion, one cushion, two cushions, three, four, five cushions. Angle them left, angle them right, lean forward. Doctor, you've got to help me. Chiropractor, osteopath, physiotherapist. For five years, I had this pain. And I had an extremely active and ingenious mind at trying to find every possible way to wriggle out of the fact that pain hurts. And I don't like it. A very obvious truth. Yet I hadn't actually come to that, accepted what one glosses over in a few words. I don't like pain. Instead, I had acted on I don't like pain. I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking pain. I tried to think, well, you should like pain. Pain is good for you. Pain is bad, make it go away. But I hadn't really looked into I don't like. So, one day, sitting in meditation, I thought, this is it, the showdown. I'm going to sit here for five hours, not moving, and I'm going to get over this thing. So, sitting, pain, pain, wriggle. Why did I say that? Why five hours? <laughs> After all, moderation, the middle way and all that. <laughs> hours go by. Two hours, three hours, three hours and one minute. <laughs> After about four hours, I was so sick of this pain. My mind had been through all the various circuits of be nice to it, be friendly with it, kill it, and came back to, oh God, this pain. And he was a Buddhist. Oh God, this pain. And finally, the mind just rested. It got tired out, I guess. Eventually, ignorance does get tired. After a while, and has to take a break from being ignorant. This is good news. And instead of ignoring it and repressing it, actually began to open to it. Without the, let's open to it and make it go away. <laughs> or let's open to it and that will make me go to some kind of cosmic space. But just, oh, alright. Then I began to see the sensation throbbing away. And it began to appear in my mind as a kind of glowing light. Throbbing. Tearing. A tearing experience. And then, because of the choiceless attention to it, I began to notice, well, there's that. And then there's this terrible kind of, no, 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 feeling going on. Resistance. Then with that, a whole lot of bitterness towards the body. Bitterness towards pain. Oh, pain, I don't like it. It shouldn't happen to me. What did I do? I'm sitting here trying to be peaceful. Pain, go away. And this kind of moaning mind. As I contemplated my relationship to the sensation, it became clear to me that there was nothing I could do with the sensation. But I could stop beating it with my mind. I began to have this experience of deep regret for all the beatings and the kickings that this mind had imposed upon life, upon this body, upon itself, upon its thoughts. Telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way, to be that way, and I felt like this whole system was some, like some mangy dog that had never really been loved, that had just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact this vision arose in my mind of this dog, a kind of mangy, hungry, flea-bitten wolf, looking at me saying, How long are you going to keep beating me for? I felt this deep sense of regret that there should be so much intolerance and hardness towards life. And in my mind's eye, something in me reached out to this creature and started to pat it, and to say, please forgive me. Then this creature turned into a cartoon dog, I always think of Scooby Dooby Doo, and we were dancing, me and this pain, dancing, me and the dog, me and the pain. And then the whole thing just exploded, very gently. And the pain disappeared. It seemed to say, thank you. Finally, I've been knocking on your door for five years. Thank you for opening. Thank you for recognizing the problem was I do not like. I will not accept. I will not open to you. And once you open, the lesson has been learned. 
the business is finished. And of course, when we hear that kind of story, we think, oh, that's how you do it. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, of course, we can't do it in order to make it go away. As Ram Dass once said, you can't be with it in order for it to go away, because it's known. <laughs> it's just a more spiritually sophisticated form of aversion, isn't it? <laughs> and pressure. So actually, trusting our body, trusting it in its times of ease, trusting it in its times of discomfort, as a place that we can learn to inhabit, a place that we can come to be deeply at home within. And yet, in that process of inhabiting, deeply inhabiting our body, what we also start to sense, what we start to feel is that our body is not so much ours alone, in the way that we tend to think about it. It's kind of interesting to reflect, actually, that, you know, we think of our body, and yet we're not the only inhabitant. Have you ever considered this? But this body is inhabited by lots and lots of beings who live in and on the the juices of this being, the bacteria in our stomach, the various things that live amongst our teeth. We scrub them every day to reduce the number of them. But it's pretty clear that there's some of them still there because we have to do it the next day. And I, for years, had this kind of awkward and embarrassed relationship to the fact that fungus grow between my toes. Athlete's foot, it's called. It sounds rather sort of, sort of, sort of tame or safe to say athlete's foot. But you contemplate that these are like little miniature mushrooms in there busy growing away. And I think since I was about eight, I have that is our tea tree all just so we sort of keep in balance. But basically it's like me and these things, we're living on the same piece of tissue. It's keeping both <laughs> of us alive. And it's pretty obvious that we're both going to be here for the length of the time this thing is going. <laughs> I've given up on the idea that I'm going to outlast it. <laughs> I don't know if I get any satisfaction from the idea that it's not really going to outlast me by very much. <laughs> and there's this kind of sense of, well, yes, sort of it's my body, but, you know, what is this thing we call body? What is this thing that we call body? It's kind of a remarkable thing when you look at it. Remarkable thing. We don't, you know, most of what is essential in our life we don't have to do. Our body does it. It's incredibly wise. I mean, it grows out of a single cell. It knows that having grown a finger, it should grow a fingernail just there. Now, if you stop and think about that, it's mind-boggling. You take food. Now, I mean, it looks like we're responsible for the primary job, which is getting the food. And to some extent, we could just, you know, if we look at our body, what is it? It's a hollow tube, a very long hollow tube, all coiled up on the inside. And what it's got attached to it is something to walk over to where the food is, something to pick up the food, something that tells us what is food and what's not food, and if it's likely to become food for something else itself, which is this thing. And that's what's going on much of the time. These basic functions, and although we, we have some influence in how much, you know, what we pick up and put in our mouth, hopefully we have some choice about that most of the time, when we're more mindful anyway, but once you've got food in your body, do you know what happens to it? Digestion. You know, it gets all broken down into these small components, and then it gets recreated and structured into these whole new things that are the cells of our body. That it regrows this whole thing every few years out of the stuff that came off plate that we put in our mouth. We've got no idea how that happens, and yet our body knows. Our body breathes by itself. Have you noticed? It breathes by itself. It's remarkable that it does that. And not only that, but it can make new ones. And, you know, um, despite sort of various efforts that um, might go into uh, 
preventing this happen in some circumstances and other times of course a lot of efforts to make it happen once a baby is conceived it's described the process of gestation whereby one body grows another body inside it and it just does that it knows how to do it it's like could we really say that's our body when it does so much by itself or might it be more appropriate to understand that somehow coexisting with this life that is body somehow sharing it you know we depend upon it to a certain degree for our ability to be here and yet so do many other beings who's to say that our great skill at sort of producing all this sort of food and consuming it and that isn't just as much in the service of all the little creatures in here that say you know we really need that body to help us get food to eat that being you know we say they're in here to help us digest things but they say no that thing out there is around us in order to put the food in here so we can digest them just a question of your point of view (laughs) and yet there's something kind of we can be a little bit uneasy with that perspective it's not quite how we'd like to think of things but what if we really took it on board what would that say about our relationship to our body I mean for starters we'd be profoundly and remarkably grateful for having got one we wouldn't be thinking God, I wish it was a bit better I wish it would last a bit longer I wish it didn't sort of trip up or stumble or wrinkle or you know smell bad or whatever we think wow look at this thing we might wish to make it of use to not just ourselves but to others we might be moved to share even of our very body with others Mm. I don't know if you've ever had a mosquito buzzing around you imagine what it would be like if we didn't look at this thing as somehow threatening and horrible and, you know, as though if there's no malaria then they really can't do you much harm a little bit of irritation and a few drops of blood is all it costs you to allow a mosquito its life I mean it's one thing not to kill it it's another thing to think oh sure you can have a drop or two I've got six liters <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, again, we laugh because it's so alien to how we relate to our body. But is it so strange? Would it be so strange to relate to our body in that way? It's said that in one of his former lives, before the life in which he was fully enlightened, the Buddha, known then as a Bodhisattva, a being who was on the path to Buddhahood, it is said that one coming across a, a mother tiger who was sick and who had two baby cubs and was unable to suckle them because she was sick and couldn't get food and they were starving that he actually threw himself to her in order to feed her <coughs> and one thinks, my gosh that's, you know, kind of amazing whether or not we believe that this actually happened but just to imagine what that might be one could offer one's whole being that unselfishly I mean in the Buddhist tradition if one has an understanding or a faith in these things one thinks well you know you lose this body you get another one so it maybe doesn't sound quite so bad Um, on the other hand that might sound like even more worrying but um, just that sense of what that might be for us the sense of really sharing our bodies rather than defending it so much there's a, another story from more recent years of Ryokan who is a, uh, a Zen monk and very much known for his, his, his joy and his remarkable friendliness and uh, having a lot of fun with children when other monks disapproved of him he was supposed to be more serious they would say he would often play with the kids but one day he was observed to be taking the life out of his robe and placing them on a rock to sun himself this is rather remarkable, people thought. And even more remarkable, at the end of the day, he picked the lice up and put them back in his robe. <laughs> you think, what communion, or what sense of relationship and connection must he have had to those beings? And what might it be for us to see 
these bodies, rather than something that's kind of separated, because mine stops here and yours is over there, and I've got to protect this one in case that one wants to eat it, while at the same time wanting to get another one, another living thing to eat so that this one survives. That whole kind of tension and fear and the, the sense of separation and dividedness that that engenders. What if we weren't living caught in that condition, that pattern, that fixation? I mean, when we come into our bodies, close our eyes and just feel them, can we tell where the one stops and something else begins? Can we notice where our buttocks end and the cushion or chair begins? Or is it just a sense of vibration, a sensation of light that's there? Coming to know our bodies from the inside, to know them as they actually are, to understand them as not ours in any absolute terms, but simply as life's expression of which we are part and participating in that, then that shared reality of having a body that is born, that does age, that will die, actually brings us together, rather than separating us, rather than our body somehow affirming or establishing our separateness. It is in fact a vehicle for realizing and discovering our profound interconnectedness and our fundamental non-separateness from anything that lives. Our body is a part of life. It expresses life. It follows its own nature. And it invites us to understand what that means for us. To just be a part of life, to follow life, to allow life to express its own nature. Our body is our temple. It is where we practice. The place we come to practice, to honour it in that spirit. The Buddha once said that within this fathom long body, this six foot long body, all the Dharma is revealed. All the truths are revealed. So may we honour in that way. So, can we just sit quietly for a minute or two, please?
time for walking meditation. And the, uh, perhaps if the bell for the next sitting could be rung at 9 o'clock, and we'll start the sitting at 5 minutes past. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.